Brilliant. Okay, thank you very much. I'm David Sarker. I'm one of the consultant cardiologists here. <coughs> uh, following on from the retirement of Andrew Marshall, I was given the honour of looking after the congenital heart disease population as the only cardiologist here that's ever done any congenital heart disease prior to his consultant appointment. Um, I want to reiterate what you've already heard, which is that generally pregnancy is very safe, and that's a good thing, though it does lead to a high expectation of... Uh, uh, mother and uh, father to be that everything's going to go well. We've already seen data that shows. Just We've already seen data that shows that cardiac disease overall remains the number one cause of maternal mortality, and the figure sits at around about 23. And I thought the slide you showed from 2011 is up to about 24 uh, deaths per million pregnancies per year. Um, unfortunately, that figure has been gradually rising. So there's roughly been a doubling of cardiac-based mortality amongst pregnant women in the last 10 to 20 years. So in fact, it's one of those few areas where we haven't been doing so well. There is a, a number of factors that are fed into this, some of which you've heard about. In fact, the biggest factor for us in the Western world is that the number of patients with adult congenital heart disease who are female and getting to reproductive age has risen markedly, and they represent the group that have made the largest contribution to mortality. About 80% of the workload of death is related to congenital cases. There's also a risk of cardiovascular disease based on things like coronary disease, etc., hypertension, thromboembolic disease, which is related to the fact that we have an advancing maternal age at first pregnancy, high incidence of hypertension now, between 6 and 8% of all pregnant cases, Obesity, which you've heard about, I think uh, I was pretty horrified to hear from Imogen that they've got someone who's pregnant with a BMI of 70. Uh, Six. Uh? Six. 76. Six. 76, which uh, the mind boggles as to how she actually got pregnant. Uh, <laughs> uh, and a pretty high incidence, uh, you see, pretty high incidence of diabetes. To, to contextualise this into a sort of global perspective, if you look worldwide, it's rheumatic fever that really counts. So rheumatic mitral stenosis still remains worldwide the big cause of maternal death. But in this country, it's extremely rare. But in my time at Derriford, I've certainly had two patients here who've had acute pulmonary edema after delivery, secondary to missed mitral stenosis, one of whom was Chinese, one of whom was African. Okay, so heart disease during pregnancy. What I'm going to do is just give you a broad brush overview of it and talk about just one or two areas in a little bit more detail. The difficulty with this talk is I hope that by the end you'll be able to work out which are the pregnant patients that are going to give you trouble. The answer of how you fix them is somewhat more complex. As I've already alluded to, the rate of uh, congenital heart disease is, is high and they're, they're contributing the bulk of our additional work. We've also got a significant quantity of valvular heart disease here. These are patients who've got, for example, aortic stenosis, mitral regurg, secondary to prolapse. Cardiomyopathies are fairly rare, uh, and I haven't got a specific slide about peripartum cardiomyopathy, but that's something we may wish to talk about. Coronary disease is also rare, but becoming increasingly frequent because of the advancing age, the higher incidence of diabetes. And then we've said already hypertension, arrhythmia, and venous thromboembolism represent the other big areas. Okay, so let's deal first with the congenital heart disease, because as I said, from my point of view, and I think glo uh, globally in the Western world, this is the big group. There are some specific outcome data dealing with each individual condition. And again, these are very broad brushstrokes. 
So along the bottom, you've got uh, the diagnosis, ASD, VSD, AVSD, or what you'd call a primum ASD, pulmonary stenosis, Epstein's, co-optation, congenitally corrected transposition, transposition to tralogy, pulmonary atresia, VSD, Fontan, etc. What I would draw your attention to is that certain things don't do well. The things that don't do well, pulmonary atresia, VSD, Fontan circulation, cyanosis. So if you're very blue, high maternal risk. If you're very blue and your saturation is less than 85%, you only have a 12% chance of giving birth to a live child. If you're a Fontan, then that, for those who are not cardiologists, means essentially you've got half a heart. You run your pulmonary circulation on a passive venous return into the lungs so that the SVC and IVC are plumbed straight into your pulmonary circulation. Then the blood returns usually to your common single ventricle, which then pumps it around your body. So you're running on half a heart, and they're pretty challenging to get your Fontan through pregnancy. Uh, Patients with pulmonary hypertension are also another group that do very badly. So this slide is generally right. The only thing I don't understand is this Eisenmenger bit from the ESC is grossly incorrect because Eisenmengers also have a very poor prognosis when pregnant. There are a number of different ways or risk scores that you could employ to give yourself a broad brushstroke idea of how risky a person's individual pregnancy is. The best classification is probably the World Health Organization one, which was done by Sarah Thorne, uh, who's the consultant in Birmingham. There are two others. There's Carpreg and Zahari. Carpreg's very simplistic. Zahari's slightly better. So I'll just run you through these, not because it's important to know about the score, it's important for you to understand the determinants of risk for, for congenital heart disease. So in the CARPREG score, there's only four variables. The first is whether you've had prior cardiac event, heart failure, TIA, stroke, or arrhythmia before becoming pregnant. The next is whether you had a baseline NYHA class 3 or 4, so greater than 2, or cyanosis. Significant outflow tract obstruction of the left ventricle or significant mitral stenosis or reduced pump function below 40%. Uh, this is a fairly useless scoring system because essentially, once you go above one, they say the risk is 75%, which is ridiculous, it's not, but, but it go, gives you a flavour of the fact that there are some fairly well-documented areas that, that cause you risk. The Zahara one is much, much better, and what it does is have all, a much bigger collection of uh, potential things to score. So history of arrhythmia, baseline, again, NYHA functional class, worse than two, uh, left ventricular outflow tract obstruction, gradient of 50 millimetres or more. Mechanical valve, and that's a very important group, mechanical valves have a very high complication rate. Moderate to severe systemic AV valve regurgitation, that's mitral regurgitation to most people. Moderate severe subpulmonary AV valve, that's TR. Uh, use of cardiac medication before pregnancy. Presence of cyanosis, smoking and reduced RV function as well, all contribute. And you can put your patient's uh, characteristics into a score and come up with a kind of ballpark risk. What uh, Sarah Thorne did is she produced a, a, a very simplistic but very useful ca uh, classification in which under the WHO you fall into one of four groups, one, two, three or four. In one, you have no increased risk of morbidity or mortality. In two, you have a small increase in maternal risk, but we wouldn't expect to have to manage those patients particularly closely. We might see them once, possibly twice in a pregnancy, then not see them again. 
Three is by far the bulk of my work, which is patients who are going to come along with a significant increase in maternal mortality. And then four are those patients in whom we would advise that they did not get pregnant. And then when they present, we have to make a very difficult decision about whether to proceed or advise them for a termination. So what sort of conditions go into these various groups? I'm sorry, it's a very busy slide. But if the MYHA group one, sorry, WHO group one, those with very, very low risk, normal essentially, are patients with a bit of mild pulmonary stenosis, patients who've had a patent ductus, mild mitral valve prolapse, or an ASD or a VSD that's been repaired. So these patients don't really require any special um, investigations or follow-up, uh, and they represent an essentially normal risk. Then you move on into group two, and group two is unoperated ASD, VSD, or very well repaired to fallow. So a fallow patient, if they're very well repaired, good right ventricular function, no pulmonary regurgitation, actually represents a pretty low risk. Um, then you've got patients who, most arrhythmic patients are fairly low risk. Then you start moving into the 2-3 border, which contains mild LV impairment, hokum, native or tissue valve heart disease not considered uh, to be one or four, Marfan's without aortic dilatation, or a bicuspid valve with an aorta below 45 or repaired coart. Level three, so I was getting a bit busy about but mechanical valve. So the reason I want to bring that to you is a mechanical valve always falls into a high-risk group. Uh, systemic right ventricle, Fontans, which we talked about, cyanotics, patients with Marfans who are getting to the cutoff of 45 millimeters, and that cutoff is the level at which we normally advise that you have a prophylactic aortic root replacement, and a bicuspid getting close to 50 millimeters, which is the level again at which we advise prophylactic aortic root replacement. And in this last slide on the WHO classification, these are the group that we tell not to get pregnant. And they include patients with severe pulmonary hypertension, patients with an ejection fraction less than 30% in NYHA class 3 or 4, those that have had a previous peripartum cardiomyopathy where they're left with some residual LV dysfunction because there is full anticipation that in a subsequent pregnancy their LV will deteriorate again and possibly in an irrevocable manner, severe mitral stenosis or severe aortic stenosis in which a patient is symptomatic, Marfans or bicuspids where the roots are large or an unoperated severe coart. And certainly in the last, I guess, couple of years that I've done it, we've had one severe coart who unfortunately we've had to terminate their pregnancy twice, uh, which was a bit unfortunate. But other than that, we've generally not had any patients who've fallen into this group who've presented. We've got one who's right on the border <laughs> with, with a severe aortic stenosis on a prosthetic valve who's turned up pregnant for a 14th time. Okay, so what I want to do now is try and do something that's somewhat relevant to the audience, which is to talk about one or two specific cardiovascular emergencies that you might in some way be asked to deal with. And the first of those is uh, chest pain leading to an acute coronary syndrome. So first thing to say is it's rare, but the incidence of it is rising. Before, the there's a large series reported by Ladner uh, and what that showed was that the initial incidence was 1 in 35,000, so very rare. Um, but by the end of the uh, reported period, it was up to 1 in 24,000. And the 2006 papers got it down to 1 in 16,000. 
So the answer is it's rare but becoming less rare because of the aging, fat, hypertensive, diabetic population. Roughly speaking, 40% of people who, of ladies who have an ACS will do it in later pregnancy. 20% will do it during delivery and 40% will do it after delivery. The risk factors are fairly clear. Age is the biggest risk factor. So the vast majority of patients are over the age of 30. And if you're a pregnant lady over 40, then in relative terms, your risk is 30 times higher than a pregnant lady under 20. It's still rare, but in relative times, much more common. And then you're left with the same risk factors that you have for normal patients with coronary disease, smoking, family history, hyperlipidemia, hypertension, and then those specific to pregnancy, which would include preeclampsia, thrombophilia, a transfusion, so if you have a difficult delivery and then you have a blood transfusion, or if you have postpartum infection. So why do you get an acute coronary uh, event? Uh, and it's a mixture of reasons. And the one I draw you to that's very well publicized is you get a relatively high incidence of acute coronary dissection, which particularly occurs around the time of delivery and in the postpartum period. There is still standard atherosclerotic plaque rupture. There are some that are reported as showing clot within the coronary artery but with no obvious cause, I suspect most of those are either microdissections or microplaque rupture that isn't picked up angiographically. And then you've got some that look entirely normal by the time imaging of the coronary arteries is obtained, and those probably are either spasm or some form of misdissection. Interestingly, amongst patients who dissect, 70% of cases involve the LAD. So if you're presented to someone with a dissection, the most likely thing is they're going to have anterior ST change. 75%, as I said, occur in women over the age of 30. And from the only three registries of 280-odd cases, there's a 7% maternal mortality. So given that the average age of these people is in the mid-30s, they don't do very well. Uh, the historical registries have shown a different uh, potential modes of treatment split almost three ways between bypass surgery, coronary stenting, and medical management. So what you'll see in a coronary dissection, this is an angiographic image, this is the <coughs> catheter, that's sitting in the left main stem, here is this uh, opacity here, in what are otherwise angiographically entirely normal coronary arteries, and the mechanism is that there is intimal disruption and a small intimal tear. Blood then tracks down to create a false lumen. And if you get enough blood tracking in the wall, it will push across and compress the true lumen. So in this case, you've got an ibis catheter in the true lumen, and there's the false lumen. Here, you've got the ibis catheter in the true lumen, and the false lumen is all of that around. So this sort of appearance is like that, because here's your true lumen and the false lumen will be all around here. Here's your true lumen, here's the false lumen. So coronary dissection uh, represents uh, an over-represented uh, thing in, in pregnancy. So what do you do if you're presented with someone who's got crushing central chest pain? Well, you'd assess them in the same way that you assess a normal ACS patient. You'd assess their history, looking for risk factors, Particular attention also to make sure they haven't had any illicit drugs and that there's no evidence of infective endocarditis because that's a source of possible embolization. You would take an ECG and you'd measure the troponin. 
The troponin in pregnancy does not go up, so the same baseline level of uh, high sensitivity TROP here, which is 12, would apply to a pregnant woman. The ECG is clearly the most important thing because this is going to decide very quickly about the ongoing treatment. Um, and you'll involve both cardiology and ONG very early on. You then need to make some, or I need to make some arbitrary distinction to help us in the management, and that's between STEMI and NSTEMI. So let's assume that the lady comes in, she's got crushing chest pain and marked anterior ST elevation. It looks like she's having an anterior infarct. What would you do? Well, lysis, there are several case reports of patients being lysed. I found seven of patients who've been lysed during pregnancy uh, and it actually gone quite well. I mean, who knows how much ascertainment bias there is, but generally lysis is felt to be contraindicated. It certainly isn't very helpful in treating dissection unless you've got a lot of associated thrombus. So not great. So if you've got a patient chest pain, decent going ECG changes, I would get a quick echo on the way to the cath lab to make sure we had a regional wall motion abnormality. And then I think we would have no option to but to proceed to an invasive angiogram. And that's something that I would do with a very heavy heart because it's a very risky procedure in this group. The reason it's risky, first up, is you've got quite a high risk of causing dissection uh, when engaging uh, the artery. So if you, that patient we saw with the uh, left main, when you stick, I don't know, I download, it's not one of ours, when you put the catheter in and you inject, you actually may extend that dissection and make it much worse. You may actually cause an interruption of flow. So you've got to be extremely careful about how you obtain your images. Um, so certainly not without risk to intervene. Um, first problem then, high risk of causing atrogenic. The second, you've got to shield the fetus. This is usually late in pregnancy, and it's possible for us we can lay a lead coat over the abdomen and we can shield the fetus fairly uh, effectively. You may well want to do it in a lateral decubitus position because you're trying to prevent um, compression by the gravid uterus on venous return. Generally, you're advised to take the first picture with the catheter not engaged into the left main to try and get some idea to make sure the left main looks all right before you stick a catheter in it. And you'll be better off taking fluoroscopy images if you can rather than cine acquisition because it's a much, much lower dose of radiation. But all of these things are fairly uh, hazardous. Once you know the coronary anatomy, it's crucial to what decision we're going to make about how to manage the patient. If you get down and the LAD is occluded and there is no flow, then you don't have much to lose uh, and you need to proceed on. So if we got no flow, then what we would do is we would proceed on and the default setting would be to do angioplasty. If we had flow and an obvious dissection, but the flow was good, then I would advise people to get out and to treat the patient conservatively, if at all possible. So once the coronary has flow, you can define, then decide upon whether you're going to proceed to angioplasty. The bypass group is not necessarily historical, but if you've got extensive dissection, it's often better done um, by surgery, if our surgeons can make sure they put the graft on the true lumen. Um, but it's clearly not good if someone is still pregnant. So if it was in the postpartum period, cabbage would be a reasonable option. But in the antipartum or peripartum period, it would be, I think, a fairly poor option. Uh, the other thing that's discussed a lot is the use of what's called IVUS. And IVUS is intravascular ultrasound. It's a way of looking inside the coronary artery. And they were the pictures that I showed you before. They're IVUS pictures. But there's a huge drawback to IVUS, which is to do an IVUS, 
you have to run a wire down the coronary artery. So it's very useful to tell you you're in the true lumen once you've got the wire down, but in advancing the wire down the artery, if you advance it down the wrong lumen, you will be peeling off the dissection further and further down. So the idea when people say to you, oh, IVUS is the answer, no, it's not the answer because there's a big risk in doing IVUS. Once you've got the wire down in what you believe is a true lumen, it's quite nice to put the IVUS catheter down and that will confirm where you are. Um, but it's not without hazard. Okay, so if we have no flow, then we might as well intervene, and the default intervention will be that we'll do PCI, that we'll try and get down the true lumen and IVUS it, but the risks in the procedure are high. If we've got good flow, then I would prefer medical management and hope that the dissection will stick down and, and heal well. Aspirin and clopidogrel are both safe for you to use in pregnancy. Clopidogrel is not great around the time of delivery. Um, but if you're away from delivery, then dual antiplatelet therapy is good, beta blockers are good, and heparin is fine. You shouldn't use 2B3A receptor blockers. That, In fact, we don't tend to use those anywhere except in the cath lab now at Dereford. You avoid statins, you avoid ACE inhibitors, and the newer antiplatelet agents and bivalirudin, <coughs> there's no data. But you wouldn't need to use bivalirudin. I don't think you need to use these. Just go with aspirin and clopidogrel. Okay. Uh, the other thing to consider, if you get a sudden presentation with chest pain, let's suppose the ECG is normal, or maybe there's some borderline right coronary change, important thing to exclude is acute aortic dissection. I've told you that Marfan's bicuspid aortic valve are predispositions. Occasionally you may get someone present for the first time who has never had a diagnosis of Marfan's, has become pregnant, has had their dilated root missed, and I've seen that once in my registrar career at St George's, uh, who presented having had catastrophic chest pain and had a type A dissection, uh, which resulted in her having to have an emergency caesarean section followed up by a root replacement. Uh, as I said, that we know with disease of the aorta that the biggest risks are Marfan's, bicuspid, Ehlers, Danlos and Turner's. We've got quite good ideas of what size you're allowed the root to be in the relative risk, but you could have a perfectly normal Marfan route and still have an acute dissection. Okay, next group, maternal palpitation. So I suspect there's a reasonable chance that you'll all get called down to casualty or an AMU and see a patient who's pregnant and come in complaining of palpitation. Certainly that's probably the commonest reason for me getting a referral to clinic. So it's a very common symptom between 10 and 15% of pregnant women will have some form of atrial or ventricular dysrhythmia. You're predisposed because you've got an increased plasma volume stretching your upper and lower cardiac chambers. You've got higher circulating catecholamine levels. The vast majority of these are a very benign phenomenon. They're just atrial and ventricular ectopic activity for which uh, the patient is really seeking reassurance. So what we have to do is to differentiate between the serious and the benign the benign is ectopic activity, and then everything else, VT, AF, SVT, block, we have to rule out. So what you need to do is take a history, whether the patient's known to have any form of congenital heart disease or coronary disease, etc., whether they had palpitations before they got pregnant. So many women will have had a long history of occasional palpitations that become much worse during the pregnant period, and that, again, is a, is a good pointer towards it being very benign. You need to assess whether there's any associated hemodynamic effect. There's something about the duration, frequency, and precipitance. 
Assuming that the patient comes to see you for the first time, you need to do an ECG to rule out the presence of delta wave for pre-excitation for WPW, uh, long QT, Brugada, or any block. Assuming that the ECG is normal and the echo is normal, the patient shouldn't be kept in. You should send the patient away uh, and they can be booked to have an outpatient five-day loop recorder. And what you're going to try and do with an event recorder is to identify the rhythm and to attempt to correlate it to their symptoms. Everyone should also have thyroid function and a full blood count done. So again, these patients generally come, get an echo the same day, get an ECG, take a good history. If they're not blacking out, they're not feeling too dizzy, they're just always bumping along in my heart, I wouldn't get too concerned about it in a structurally normal heart, send them on their way without patient investigation. What about if you have some genuine dysrhythmia? I say genuine other than ectopic activity. Uh, commonest things would be in a structurally normal heart would be SVT. So if someone comes along to casualty, they say, I've got a palpitation, I'm pregnant, you record a narrow <coughs> complex tachycardia, then you do what you normally do, which is you try a vagal manoeuvre, and then you're quite safe in giving them intravenous adenosine to try to terminate their dysrhythmia. All of that is perfectly safe. If that doesn't work, you've got the option of giving them beta blockers of rapamil. Flecainide is also perfectly safe. Um, we would advise avoidance of amiodarone and propafenone. It's not that propafenone is unsafe, there just isn't very much data with it. And as a last resort, you can always cardiovert a patient. But for standard SVT, no hemodynamic influence, perhaps banging along at 150, 160, I would go vagal manoeuvre, adenosine, and then try them on a bit of beta blocker or flecainide. The next question, this presumes that they have a structurally normal heart. The next group are SVT in the sort of congenital heart disease population, which is my group, and they're a different ballgame because they often don't tolerate their SVT nearly so well. The commonest thing for them is actually not to have AVNRT or AVRT, but to have atrial flutter or focal atrial tachycardia. They'll come along often less well. If you give them adenosine, you won't do them any harm, but it won't terminate their dysrhythmia because their dysrhythmia does not depend upon re-entry through the AV node. So what you'll do is you'll slow down AV node conduction and reveal the underlying flutter wave or you'll slow down their uh, focal atrial tachy and then it'll slow and just speed back up again a few seconds later. So it's quite useful as a diagnostic tool to use adenosine, but it's not very good therapeutically. How you're going to treat the dysrhythmia depends upon how the patient is. I would expect that you'd call me up if I'm around and ask a bit of advice or get some advice from the on-call cardiologist. Um, but if you're in any doubt, I would terminate the dysrhythmia with a cardioversion. If the patient looks cold, shut down, is unwell, then the simplest thing is to give them a very quick and short uh, anaesthetic and give them a cardioversion. If they're very stable, then you can slow them down with digoxin. Your problem is in giving patients beta blockers or flecainide when you have no assessment of their underlying cardiac function or any in-depth knowledge of their structural problem because you could get yourself into quite a lot of trouble. So I wouldn't advise giving the congenital population beta blockers or flecainide without some uh, echo assessment and consultation as to whether it's going to be safe or not. 
Uh, last bit on arrhythmia, which is uh, atrial fibrillation and flutter. Again, this is something that's quite rare in uh, pregnancy. Again, it's uh, more common if you've got a congenital abnormality and a structurally abnormal heart. Once again, if you're compromised, we advise that you cardiovert, which you can do electrically or you can do with IV flecainide. Again, if you've got some assessment of ventricular function, I think the best thing is to electrically revert them. The other question result, uh, relates to what you do about anticoagulants. Um, if someone had a very low traditional uh, embolic risk with a low CHADS VAS score and that they've been in AF for less than 48 hours, then you can put them onto heparin and electrically revert them and not give them subsequent systemic anticoagulation. But if someone has a high risk or has come along with an onset of AF that you don't know, then they'll need a TOE and reversion and then probably follow on anticoagulant therapy. Okay. All right, then I want to do one last thing, five minutes, which is to talk a little bit about warfarin because I think it's such an important area. So I showed you data early on that showed if you've got a prosthetic metal valve, in the WHO classification, you're straight into group three, which puts you at high risk of maternal morbidity and mortality. And we have an increasing population of reproducing women who have a prosthetic valve. We're often not involved in the initial decision of whether to give a patient a tissue valve or a mechanical valve. And that's quite a difficult discussion that's had um, prior to surgery. The big disadvantage with a tissue valve is obviously the lack of longevity uh, that tissue valves tend to deteriorate over time. And interestingly, their life is quite a lot shorter in younger patients as opposed to, as opposed to older patients. So a 75-year-old will get a much longer run out of a tissue AVR than a 25-year-old. So if you're presented with, let's say, a girl of 16 with tight aortic stenosis who needs a valve replacement, were you to give her a tissue valve, the reality is that she may have tight aortic stenosis in her tissue valve or a leaking valve by her mid-twenties when she wanted to reproduce. So unfortunately, uh, the option of giving tissue valves is, is often not feasible in the younger age group. We know that the risks of thrombosis of a mechanical valve depend on two factors. One is the position of the valve. So mitral valves are more thrombogenic than aortic valves, so always be careful with mitrals. And the design of the valve, so that old-fashioned ball and cage star Edward valves are very thrombogenic, as a modern tilting disc valve is much less so, and there are now on the market one or two carbon fibre aortic valves who are claiming that in normal practice you can get by with almost no warfarin. <coughs> so what do we know about warfarin? Well, there are a number of facts. The first fact is that warfarin is a small molecule and it crosses the placenta quite readily and there is a definite risk of warfarin-induced embryopathy if your fetus is exposed to warfarin between 6 and 12 weeks of gestation. We know that there's an increased risk of intracerebral hemorrhage, stillbirth and miscarriage compared to a normal pregnancy. Not necessarily compared to taking warfarin, as compared to taking heparin, but compared to a normal pregnancy. We know that the risks of warfarin embryopathy are not related to the INR. They are related physically to the, to the amount in milligrams of warfarin that a patient takes. And so there is a lot of debate amongst cardiologists as to whether there is a safe absolute dose of warfarin 
that patients can be advised to have. This is what um, fetal uh, warfarin syndrome looks like. Uh, it's also called Dessart <coughs> syndrome. You get nasal hyperplasia, so the bridge of the nose is often sunk back into the face. Uh, you get deep grooves between the nostril and the nasal lips. You get this funny stippling uh, of the epiphyses. You get hyperplasia of the nails, shortening of the fingers, low birth weight, and the important thing is you get significant mental retardation, reduced muscular tone, increased risk of seizures, increased risk of deafness. So there's quite a lot of important things that can occur, and there is some debate about what the global incidence is, but in your minds it's somewhere around 6 to 10% of children born to a lady with a metallic valve who takes warfarin throughout pregnancy. The rough incidence is about 10%, so it's quite high. So is there a safe dose? Well, the fundamental question that we need to ask ourselves is how you are, how toxic is warfarin to a baby and how effective is heparin or clexate as an alternative for the mother? So the first business with the warfarin goes back to 1999 when an Italian group produced data on 58 pregnancies that had been managed with warfarin. And they divided their pregnant cohort into two groups those that took less than five milligrams of warfarin a day and those that took more than five milligrams. In the less than five milligrams, they had a single case of embryopathy amongst 33 pregnancies, giving them a rate of 3%, as in the over five milligrams, they reported a rate of 12%. So this led to quite a lot of excitement of the fact that maybe there's a safe dose uh, below which the incidence of embryopathy is very low and continuing with warfarin makes sense. There have been reports of embryopathy on doses as low as 3 milligrams. So there is definitely no absolutely safe dose. The uh, paper in 2011 uh, from Pillai uh, again looks at a, a number of pregnancies and they didn't mimic the effect of showing a dose relationship. But generally, most page papers have shown that there is a clear relationship between the amount of warfarin you take and the risk of embryopathy. The next question is how effective is the alternative for the mother, which is heparin? There are 280 reports in the literature up to 2012 on heparin's use versus warfarin, and none of them, none of them show that heparin is a superior or safer anticoagulant for the mother. So it's definitely clear that warfarin is the most effective anticoagulant in preventing thrombotic-related events on the valve. So there's no evidence that heparin or low molecular, low molecular heparin is more effective, but we certainly know that it is safer for the baby. Uh, the biggest fan of this is McClintock, who's in New Zealand, and she's produced a paper uh, with 47 pregnancies and 33 women. What she showed was a relatively high rate of thrombotic episodes on the valve in the heparin group, and when we talk about heparin, almost nobody is using unfractionated. They're using enoxaparin, clexane. And what they show is that these high rate of events occurred in patients who were subtherapeutic in accordance with the 10A level or were non-compliant. So probably, if you have a moderate thrombotic risk, you can take clexane during your pregnancy but with appropriate monitoring of the 10A level and excellent compliance. So this is rounded out in the 2011 ESC guidance, which says that you should continue um, 
the continuation of oral anticoagulants, i.e. warfarin, should be considered during the first trimester if the warfarin dose required for therapeutic anticoagulation is less than 5 milligrams a day, uh, after patient information and consent. You can discontinue discontinuation of oral anticoagulants between week 6 and 12 and replacement by adjusted dose unfractionated heparin, which we really wouldn't do, um, or low molecular weight heparin twice a day with dose adjustment according to weight and target anti-10A levels for four to six hours post-dose should be considered in a patient with a warfarin dose requirement of over five milligrams. So uh, they're reasonably clear um, and that just leads us to what we actually do. Well what we actually do is we discuss and engage with the patients and explain to them the pros and the cons if they've got a low-risk valve, so let's say it's a modern aortic valve, then we offer those patients Clexane. We give them a milligram per kilogram twice a day, and we measure the factor 10A, both the peak and the trough level. Um, and what we're interested in doing is getting a trough that's greater than 0.7 and a peak less than 1.5. And that may involve us having to increase either the amount of uh, Clexane we give or the dosing frequency. So we have people out at present who are on three injections a day in order to keep the trough level sufficiently high without overshooting the peak level. Um, then for, for many of the aortic valves, we've run them on Clexane for the whole pregnancy. Uh, for the higher risk group, so the mitral valves, we have tended to convert them into Clexane for the first trimester then back onto warfarin because we accept that warfarin is a better anticoagulant than clexane for the mother, run them on warfarin for the second and third trimester, then at 36 weeks onto clexane for a couple of weeks in the community, then into hospital for intravenous heparin around the time of the delivery. So uh, I've given you half an hour, a bit more uh, of an overview. What I would say is there is an excellent publication from the European Society of Cardiologists that runs to 52 pages as a sort of baseline, um, which provides some guidance about most things, and there's comparable guidance from the a ACC and AHA. But most of the guidance is based not on very robust or randomised data, but on a consensus opinion between the various experts. Thank you very much. Thank you.